right? It's just an easy job. You get to speak for 20 to 40 minutes on this passage and, you know, you kind of make it up as you go along and then you look at Mark 13 and you go, yeah, I was a bit dumb when I was a kid. So, you know, I'm going to pray for, uh, for us as we, as we look at this passage. If we haven't met yet, my name's Hans, but uh, we're going to look at this passage and uh, hopefully we'll make a little bit more sense of it uh, than uh, we had when we came in. So let's pray. Father God, as we look at this passage, a passage that is fraught with difficulty, Lord, we pray that you would, uh, you would help us to see what you want us to see. Help us to be clear on what it says and what it doesn't. But Lord, help us to walk away from here knowing you more and knowing how we're meant to live. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, before I kick off, two, two things very quickly. There are outlines on the, on the table next to the, next to the sound desk. The other thing is there's going to be Q&A after this, uh, after this sermon, and so please be nice in the Q&A, uh, but yeah, there, there, are, there is going to be Q&A afterwards if there's something not clear. Um, one of the things I ha- I've, I've, I've got in my job is I've got an office right next to the door and it says, uh, you know, it, it basically says Mar- Marshall Community Church, at the front, you go through, you see church office. And probably every six months I have someone knocking on the church office and it's usually someone who's going around from church to church to church and they're usually a little bit weird, a little bit intense and they always want to talk about one bit of theology and it's not about like the Bible, it's not about Jesus, it's not about you know the cross or something, it's all about when Jesus is coming back and and what I do usually, I, I give these guys about two minutes and usually within the first two minutes they start talking about politics and Israel and the UN and Trump and Biden or whatever it is, right? And at that time, at that point, I politely say, hey, look, we're really on different pages on this. And, you know, I've thought through these issues. I'm sorry, you're not going to find, like, you know, an audience that is going to accept me here. So, so you know, you know, brother in Christ, can you, because it's always bloke, do you reckon... And they, they always say, yeah, that's fine, that's fine. Um, last time uh, this happened was only a, a few months ago. And it was interesting, as I said that, he goes, oh, but before you go, uh, do you mind me praying for you? And he did, and he prayed for me. It was, it was a great, generous prayer. And then he said, can I ask, where did you study? Where did you study to be a pastor? I said, I, I studied at more College. He goes, oh, just like my pastor too. And he said, you know what your problem is, the guys who have gone through more College? He said, you, you're not concerned enough about the return of Jesus. You don't think about it enough. And then he walked away. And that's all he said. I was taken aback by that. And I was like, going, how dare he be so rude? How dare he, he just finish the conversation like that? But can I just say, as I've been reading through Mark 13 and thinking about the return of Jesus, I think he's right. I think I don't think enough about... The return of Jesus, and I just... Am I on now? Okay, sorry about that. I'm on. That was my fault. It wasn't the guys at the back. I don't think I think enough about the return of Jesus. And I dare say, with the busyness of our lives, we're so concerned with the things that are in front of us that we don't think about the return of Jesus enough. And yet, Mark 13, one of the things that Jesus is talking about is about his return. The New Testament is clear that that Jesus will return 
And if we don't think about it, we are missing out on a significant part of the New Testament which is meant to shape everything of our lives. The return of Jesus is meant to shape my priorities for my time, my family, my children, and the rest of my life. And so we're going to think about it today. We're going to see three things as we look at Mark 13. We're going to see how to live in the days to come. The second point is the days to come. And third point is being ready for what will come. So the first point is how to live in the days to come. Second point, the days to come. And thirdly, being ready for what will come. Now, but before we get into those things, I'm going to ask two questions as we prepare for this passage, because I don't know, as Michelle was reading it, did anyone read it and just go, oh man, this, this passage is super clear, I know exactly what it says, I wonder if you had a growth group this week that you came away going, I know what Mark 13 is about, I feel so encouraged and everything, or do you have heaps and heaps more questions, right? So, see, we look at Mark 13, and it's actually a very, very troubling passage, it's very confusing. I, I read literally 13 commentaries this week. And six of them said that this is the hardest passage to interpret in the New Testament. And I thought, who was the idiot that assigned me preaching this passage? I thought, well, it's me, right? And so, very troubling passage. So, so, here's the first thing. Here's what we keep in mind when we come to a difficult part of Scripture. And this is a difficult part of Scripture. The first thing is that we need to keep in mind is this, that this is God's Word, so understanding it is important. We cannot just go, I don't understand this, so I'm just reading Mark 14, I'll forget about Mark 13. No, because it's God's word and therefore it's important. Secondly, this is the second thing to keep in mind when interpreting a difficult part of scripture. God is clear in his communication and therefore his word is clear. That's really important because... If, if there's a difficult part of Scripture, it is not because God has been unclear, it's because the interpretation or the problems with the interpretation are, are on our end, not on God's. Thirdly, it is okay to disagree on secondary issues. It's okay to disagree about uh, some, some different parts of Scripture and what they mean. And this is one of those passages where it's okay to disagree. Fourthly, we've got to make sure that Scripture interprets Scripture. That is, we don't, look, we don't primarily look outside Scripture when we're trying to interpret Scripture. We don't go, first and foremost, to history, which I love, to interpret Scripture. Nor do we look at the news events today to then go, okay, this is what's happening in the Bible. No, we interpret Scripture with Scripture. Fifthly, the, the simple approach is usually the best approach. I'm not sure if you've ever heard a, a, a person preach on a particular text and when the Bible is being read out, you go, oh man, I get what it's saying. And then they explain the Bible and you go, actually, I don't know what, it's, what it means. I think that, that preacher or that interpreter has messed up because they have made the scripture where God speaks plainly hard to understand. And six is the last one on this point. If we come up with an interpretation where the first hearers went, would go, I don't get what you're saying, we've got it wrong. 
So what that means is, have you ever heard someone preach on the book of, Israel, uh, book of uh, Revelation and they talk about the United Nations and they talk about the United Nations, the political thing. Now, I think if they went back to the first century and started talking about that, the first hearers of the book of Revelation would go, what are you talking about the United Nations? What, what are you talking about all this? And so if the first hearers don't get, what, get our interpretation, we probably got it wrong. In fact, I would say we definitely got it wrong. Because the Bible, first and foremost, was written to them and us. Not us first and them. Here's the next question before we get in the passage. Why is this passage so difficult? As I said, a bunch of commentators said this is the hardest passage in the New Testament. But, but, but here's why it's difficult. It's a t- type of genre called apocalyptic or prophetic apocalyptic. And we don't have that around today, right? This, is, this, this, kind, of, uh, this kind of genre of, of literature was very popular in the 200 years before Jesus and the 200 years after Jesus, but kind of just kind of waned. And so we don't have around today. And so here's the three things that we need to know about, about this genre. The first is who. Who was it written for? Now, if you read, I've got a book on, uh, in my library, and it's 600 pages of just apocalyptic literature. It's fascinating. Actually, I, said, I told some of the guys that, uh, that men and meat last night, I said it was fascinating. They looked at me weird. I was like, that's fascinating to me, not to anyone else, right? And what you've got to realize about apocalyptic literature, whether it be Jewish, Christian, it doesn't matter, it's always written to a group of people who are either about to go into persecution and trial and hard times, or they're in it. It's always written to a bunch of people that are about to go into trial or persecution or hard times, or they're in it. That's the first thing. So you have a look at the book of Revelation. Book of of Revelation was written to a bunch of people who are being persecuted under Nero. And they're in the midst of it. And he says, keep going. That's the who. The what. We've got to take this, the, the genre, literally, not literalistically. That is, you don't read this genre as if it's a narrative. You, you don't, like in the book of Revelation, for example, once again, there's a few times when you see a picture of the end in chapter 7 and chapter 21, right? And you go, wait up, that messes up my chronology of the whole book. But you've got to realize you don't read it as if it's like Lord of the Rings with a start, middle, and end. What, what, what apocalyptic does is give us pictures. So it's not like we're watching a movie. It's more like we're in a picture gallery where we see, especially you see this in the book, book of Revelation. He keeps saying, then I saw, and then I saw, and then I saw. They're pictures. And so we've got to realize that it's a picture, not a narrative. And so, that, uh, so we'll see how that works out. And lastly, where. So there's the, the who, the what, and the where. Where do we look when we're interpreting this, when we're interpreting apocalyptic? Well, we, we look at a few places. First of all, we look at Scripture, because Scripture always interprets Scripture. Second of all, we, we, we 
look back to the original crisis of what was, ha- was going to happen or what was happening. And thirdly, we look forward to Jesus coming back. Because apocalyptic literature works on two levels. It is always talking about the crisis that is going on and it always looks forward to the redemption of the people through that crisis. So the book of Revelation is, all, is talking about the crisis of the first century that Christians are going in, and it always looks forward to the return of Jesus. This passage is looking at the crisis of the destruction of the temple and what's happening around that for Christians, and it's always looking forward to Jesus. And so you've got to ask this question, is this, about, is this passage about the destruction of the temple, or is this passage about the return of Jesus? And the answer is yes. It's about both. And in fact, I would say the whole thing is about both. So you could read it in one way and go, that's about the destruction of the temple, and it's also about the return of Jesus. It's a bit like this. There's a photo coming up, a picture coming up on the screen. Now, is this a young lady or an old lady? Who votes for a young lady? Okay, who can see the old lady? Who can see both? Yeah, we can see both, right? We've seen this before. And you go, is this a young lady or an old lady? Well, the answer is yes, it's both. And and then when we go back to Mark 13, is this about the return of Jesus, the destruction of the temple? It's about both. It's about both. And so with, with that very short intro in mind... Let's jump into this passage and have a look at the first passage. And, and here's the thing. I've got to say, because of the nature of this passage, this is going, we're kind of going to be stuck in, in the passage. Usually I have like a bunch of applications. That application will be at the end. Uh, and uh, we're trying to make sense of this passage. So this is going to be a bit more heady than my n- normal sermons. And I apologize. Have a look at verse 1 as we look at how to live in the days to come. Have a look at verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what, mass, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. So here is Jesus. Jesus has been teaching in the temple courts. It's been really intense. And you can imagine one of the disciples goes, Hey, Jesus, mate, like the architecture. And Jesus jumps in. Oh, by the way, Everything's going to be flattened. And they just keep walking because the next bit of the conversation, have a look at where it is. Verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. So they've actually walked a few, uh, you know, you know a few, maybe an hour from the temple courts to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples are like, oh, what, are they, what has he been talking about? When's all this going to happen? And that's what they ask. Verse 3. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? So Jesus, you say this is going to be flattened, so when is it going to happen? And notice how Jesus doesn't answer their question. Have a look. Verse 5. Watch out that no one deceives you. Jesus is saying... The most important thing, disciple, follower of me, is not when all this will happen, but how you're meant to live in the light of it happening. 
And he actually says three things. The first is, watch out that no one deceives you. In what way can people deceive you? Verse 6, many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. So there's going to be false, false prophets. People will say, hey, Jesus is coming back or I, I, I'm Jesus. That's how people will be, decept, be deceived. But also, have a look at verse 7. When you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen. But in the end, sorry, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. Now, Jesus is saying there's going to be wars and rumours of wars. But notice how he ties that to being deceived. What I think he's saying is, don't be freaking out when everyone's talking about wars and rumours of wars, as if Jesus, as if I am coming back, because the three are linked. There's deception, there is, here I am Jesus, or here is Jesus, and there's wars and rumours of wars. Because I think what Jesus can see into the future, maybe, and see that there's going to be a cottage in industry of people predicting when he's coming back based on political things. If you look at Wikipedia and you look at the return of Jesus, you will look at, you can see about 2,500 predictions of Jesus in the last 2,000 years where people said, well, this is happening in the political realm or the religious realm or whatever, therefore Jesus is coming back. And I think what Jesus is saying is that's a form of deception. That is a form of deception. If you've got a preacher that you like to listen to that bangs on about what's happening in Israel and therefore Jesus is coming back, I think that's a form of deception and here's why, for two reasons. The first of all, it gives us the wrong focus. If we've got a preacher and he's talking about the UN and what's happening politically and wars and everything, we're focusing on that and not on Jesus. And what is deception? Deception, a part of deception is getting us to focus on the wrong things. But also, it's not only the wrong focus, it gives us the wrong threat. What is the biggest threat to the church? Or, or the mission of God, or, or, or however you want to say it? Is it what's happening politically? No, in the New Testament, the biggest threat is false teaching. And so if you've got a preacher who's going, oh, you should be scared because of the New World Order, all this kind of stuff, he's actually ignoring what the New Testament says. Because the New Testament says the biggest threat to the church is false teaching from within. And so Jesus is saying, don't be deceived. There's going to be wars. And, and notice how Jesus is so kind of flippant about the wars. There's going to be wars of rumors of wars that's going to happen. But don't be deceived. That's the first thing. Don't be deceived. Second thing, verse 9, be on your guard. And in verses, from verses 9 to verse 11, he's talking about being handed over to councils, being flogged in the synagogues, all this kind of stuff. Why should you be on your guard? In the New Testament, it says guard the gospel. That is, make sure you're clear on the gospel and make sure that no one comes in and deceives you to take you away from it. And I think he's saying guard the gospel because you've got a job to proclaim it. Whether it be, you know, in front of councils or whatever, or in verse 10, to all nations. 
But don't be concerned if you're being brought up in these places. Why? Because, verse 11 once again, the Holy Spirit will speak through you. So make sure in, the, in these last days, make sure you guard the gospel. And finally, verse 12, brother will, be, will betray brother to death and uh, father his child. Children will rebel against the parent, their parents and have them put to death. Excuse me. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. He's saying, guess what? If you follow me, it's going to create turmoil in families and societies. But stand firm. Stand firm. Some of you guys have experienced that. You, you started following Jesus and it seems like you lost all your friends or your family kind of betrayed you or whatever. Jesus is saying, stand firm to the end. Why? Because you will be saved. And so the three ways that we're meant to live in, in, this, in this world now, Jesus is saying three very, very important things. Don't be deceived. Guard the gospel and stand firm. But what about the days to come? That's our second point. Have a look at verse 14. It says this, When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, you've got that abomination that causes desolation. And then it says, let the reader understand. And we're all reading that and go, oh, yeah, it's really easy to understand, isn't it? Everyone gets what that means. The... Uh, this is, uh, this, is a this is a quote from chapter, uh, chapter 9 in Daniel. And, and, and it talks about, in Daniel, uh, something that's going to happen that is going to be so disgusting to God that he's going to be so angry about. A lot of historians and a lot of people around Jesus' day talked about a time in 168 BC when a leader set up an altar to Zeus in the middle of the temple. Jesus is saying there's going to be times going forward where God's name is going to be so profaned and so just drawn through the mud. That's when you'll know you'll be in the last days. And then verses 15 to 20 is general dis disaster language. If you read the Old Testament about, you know, where it talks about wars or, or these kind of things, this is the kind of language that happens. It, it, it is people going from housetops, you know, entering their house, fleeing to mountains, all this kind of stuff. Jesus is saying there's, it's going to be like a disaster. In fact, it's going to be so bad that God's going to, in his grace, cut short those days for the sake of the elect. But then he says, how should you live in, the, in this time? Once again, verse 21. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear, perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. Notice again he is saying, do not be deceived, be on your guard. Why? Because there are false prophets and false messiahs. And notice how impressive they are. 
They can do miracles. It's not like that. Jesus is not saying they have the appearance of doing miracles. He's saying they can do miracles. Now, can I just say that's a little intimidating for me? Because I don't know about you, but I've never performed a miracle. I've never gone into a, 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 um, a sick person's home and said, get up and walk, and they have, or anything like that. I would love to do that. That's never happened to me. But, but what Jesus is saying here is, don't be impressed by the appearance of miracles. Don't, don't look at a ministry and go, oh, they're healing all these people. It must be legit. Because you may be deceived. Don't be deceived, Jesus says. Be on your guard. And how do you be on your guard? Have a look at verse 23 again. I have told you everything ahead of time. You, you be on your guard. You see what's false by, by understanding very, very clearly what Jesus says so you can see what's wrong. It's a bit like this, right? Um, as you know, I play guitar. My favorite brand of guitars are Gibsons. I have played hundreds of different Gibson Les Pauls, right? There's a particular uh, shape, and I just love it. Slash used to play one. That's why I, I love them. And I play hundreds and hundreds of them. A couple of years when I was on a holidays, I walked into a cash converters, and I saw this kid with his dad, and, he, and he's playing this guitar, and, and he said, Dad, yeah, I want to buy it. And, and, it was, and it had Gibson on, on, the, on the headstock. It was shaped like a Les Paul. And I could see the tag on it. They wanted two and a half grand, which for a second-hand Gibson Les Paul was pretty, pretty good. But I went up to them and I said, this is a fake. This is a fake. And he said, how do you know? And I, and I pointed out a bunch of different things on it. I said, this is an absolute fake. I have... I play hundreds of these. I can spot a fake. This is a fake. Do not spend your money. And then I got kicked out of that cash converters. And then the dad said, well, where should I buy one? I pointed him in the right direction, right? How did I know it was a fake? It's a fake because I was so familiar with a real thing. And what Jesus is saying, I think, is that I've told you everything ahead of time. Be really familiar with the real thing so you can spot what is false, so you will not be deceived. So you will not be deceived. And then, finally, in verses 24 to 27, he uses language to say he's going to come back. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Once again, remember it's apocalyptic language. It's not saying this is literally going to happen. It's a picture of the world being turned upside down. And at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now, now, here's the thing. I said before, uh, is this about Jesus' return or the destruction of the temple? And I said it's both at the same time. Because if you have a look at verses 13, or sorry, 1 to 13, all that trial the early church went through, but it's still relevant for now because there's persecution that happens today. There's false teachers uh, uh, around that happen today. 
the, the early church, all that was happening before the destruction of the temple. And all, all what we've seen here, all this destruction language, I think is, 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 can be either interpreted to say that Jesus is coming back and the temple, it's both at the same time. But this is a hard thing. In AD 70, when the temple was destroyed, how do we see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of great power? What you've got to realize is, is that temple that was destroyed in AD 70 wasn't the first temple. In 586, the Solomonic Temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. And if you read the, the scriptures and what it says about, about the Babylonians coming and destroying the, the temple, what you'll see is they actually say it was God that destroyed it. You can have a, have a look up on uh, 2 Chronicles 36 or Jeremiah 32, 39 and 52. It's very clear. The Bible says God brought judgment. And it's very personal. So, and, and, and here's where I'm, I'm about 60% sure I'm right at this point, right? 60 to 65%, depending on how good I feel. I think if you're a first century Christian and you heard about the destruction of the temple, you would see that as God's judgment coming on the nation of Israel. That God has personally brought judgment. And the language here, the Son of Man coming in the clouds, is from uh, Daniel 9, chapter 27, where, G, where the Son of Man comes in judgment. And so Jesus, I think, is using another word picture that is evocative of not only him coming back, but also the, the destruction of the temple. And then what do you do about verse 27? And he will send his angels and gather the elect from the four winds from the four ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. What we've got to realize is that verse 27, where it talks about angels, it can be also interpreted messenger. So this is a time, you know, especially after AD 70, where all the Christians and everyone's expelled from Jerusalem, where he pushes, where God, through that destruction and judgment, puts messengers all the way around the world so that the elect will come to know Jesus. And yet there's going to be a time at the end where Jesus comes back fully and that's when all the elect will come together. Now, you may disagree with that, but that's how I interpret this. So that is the days to come. And finally, let's have a look at the last point, being ready for what will come. Have a look. Have a 28 with me. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, you will see these things happening. You will know that it is near, right at the door. Surely I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until these things happen. Here, Jesus is finally answering their first question. What was the question? When will these things happen? And they're asking specifically about the temple. And Jesus says, within this generation, within the next 50 years. And so, and so what, what are we meant to do with that? Jesus is not saying, I'm going to come within this generation back in a way that the whole world can see. No, what he's saying is, he is saying, I have predicted the destruction of the temple. 
And because he's predicted the destruction of the temple, you know he's coming back. You know he's coming back. And so, what should be our attitude? Verse 32. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. What should you do? The third time, be on your guard. Be alert. You do not know what time, uh, sorry, you do not know when that time will come. It is like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells them, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or, the, or, or, or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. What should we watch? So many people would say we, we should watch for what's happening in the political sphere or that kind of stuff. No, I actually think we should keep a watch of our own lives that we're actually living rightly in these last days. So how are you going living in light of these last days? Because notice how Jesus once again says, you don't know when he's going to come back. There's been so many people who have said, oh, you you know, Jesus is coming back now, then, whenever... And Jesus is saying that basically they don't know. They're trying to deceive you. See, it's a bit like this. What happened at 1 a.m. on the 29th of October, 1992? There's a couple of uh, pictures coming up right here on the screen. Did anyone see these back in 1992? I'm getting some some nods. And there was a a, a group called, and let, let me get this right, Mission to the Coming Days. And so they put these all around the world. And they had the timetable of, of the rapture when Jesus was going to come back. And so in Israel, Jesus is going to come back 6 p.m. on the 28th. Sydney, he was going to come 1 a.m. on the 29th back in 1992. Melbourne, I can... Re- now, here's the thing, right? I can remember this being on the news, and I was about... I was 11 years old. This was making the rounds on the news. And I can still remember... Me and my family, we weren't Christians at that, having a great laugh when there was a news camera at the head of their Sydney branch and, you know, at 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock, they all came in down because Jesus didn't come back. And, and I can remember a, a, a watching a comedian on, on Steve Vizard late at night. I don't know, I don't know if you remember Steve Vizard. And, and uh, you know, he was saying, oh, you know, I was there and... And then there was this, this old man that came down and I was really, really sad because he was crying and, and I didn't know what to do. So I just went out and gave him a hug and I said, oh, don't worry, mate, it's not the end of the world. And um, when that comedian said oh, it was a lot funnier. But, but, but the thing is, these people happen all the time. And Jesus is saying, you're looking at the wrong thing. Look at your life and make sure your life is ready for when Jesus comes back. Don't take on false teaching. Don't be concerned when people are saying, there he is, there he is, there he is. No, no, no. Focus on your life. Are you ready for when Jesus comes back? Because Jesus could come back anytime. 
It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be 2,000 years or 2 million years from now. You, you see, 2 Peter talks about uh, a thousand years is like a day for the Lord. So there's a sense in which Jesus has just gone home for the weekend. And yet, when could he come back? Soon. So be ready. Here are four quick points of application. The first is, as I've said, do not be deceived. Be careful and discerning of what you hear and read about Jesus, especially when it comes to the end times. Don't let it take your, your, don't let false teaching take your mind and heart away from Jesus. Any ministry that is banging on more about politics than Jesus is deceiving you, even if they believe the scriptures. Second point, are you living in light of the last days when Jesus will come back? Is your whole life ordered around that? See, the thing is, I think we live for other time frames, right? Just take parenting, for example. I think there's, there's three kind of uh, end dates that we can parent our kids towards. We can either parent our, ki- our, our kids towards the HSC, getting a great mark in the HSC. And so what we'll emphasize in that, in that if, if we're parenting like that, we'll emphasize study and, 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 and all that kind of thing. Or some of us will parent uh, uh, our kids for the day they move out and become adults and we will be talking about character and, and discipline and all that kind of stuff. And let me tell you, study is important, character is important. But I think if we are parenting our children for that last day, we will emphasize Jesus with them. If I was to ask your children, those of you who have got children or, or children at school or whatever, and I said, what do your parents emphasize in the conversation about you? I wonder if they'd say, oh, it's Jesus. They're, they're banging on about Jesus all the time. In fact, I can't get them to shut up. Or you, or, or would they say, actually, it's just about school. It's about doing the right thing at school. It's about character, whatever. Once again, school and character and all that is important, but Jesus is the ultimate. How are you parenting your children in light of that last day? Thirdly, this is the age, very clearly from Mark 13, that we're meant to spread the gospel. This is the age. And if Jesus is coming back soon, that brings us an urgency to share the gospel. We're not lazy about it because it could happen anytime. No, Jesus could come back tomorrow, so we need to... We need to take every opportunity to share the gospel. And that's why, why these cards are so important, where we can give these to our friends and invite them to Easter or the Big Question series. Why do we do that? Why, why, are we, why do we bang on about evangelism? Because the time is short and Jesus is coming back. So I wonder, who are you inviting to Easter? Who are you inviting to the Big Questions? And lastly, have a look again at verse 13. The second half of verse 13. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. If you trust in Jesus, the whole world can go bananas. Your whole life can go bananas. But if you keep trusting in Jesus because of what he's done and because of him taking you to the end, you will stand before him on on that last day. And he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. So for us, Mark 13 has got some warnings, but it's got a great encouragement that if you stand firm to the end, you will be saved.
because of all that he's done for us. I'm going to pray, and then we'll have Q&A. Father God, I, I pray, I thank you for this passage, this really difficult passage. I pray that as we have uh, looked at it, I pray that it will be clearer, or at least a little bit clearer for some of us. Lord, help us, help us to major on what this passage majors on, not to be deceived, to keep running the race with perseverance, to keep spreading the gospel. Help us to live in light of Jesus' return. Help us to be keep following him so we would see him face to face. And he may say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So David's going to come up. He's going to uh, get some questions and I'll see if I can answer them. Hey, anyone got a question? All is clear, right? Anyone have any thoughts? Anything that have come across that hasn't been explained to their satisfaction? Tim. Um, why do you think, uh, you know, all of Martin's gospel and then Mark 13 all of a sudden apocalyptic? Yeah. Why do you think there's that sudden shift? Yeah, yeah, because I think, I think Jesus, oh, so, sorry, do you want to repeat sorry, the question? That? Yep. So Tim asks, if the rest of Mark is all about um, the gospel, why is this section all about the end times all of a sudden? Yeah, is, is it the question of the end times oh. or... Okay. Okay. okay, so I, th- uh, so I think Jesus is speaking about the end times in the genre that's most appropriate for his time. So if you have a look at, um, as I said, you can borrow that book from me if you want, uh, you know, 600 pages of apocalyptic. You couldn't, in Jesus' time, you, could, you almost couldn't talk about the end times if you didn't talk about, you know, use the genre apocalyptic. So that's why I think that the shift is there. Anyone else? Andrew? Andrew? Okay. Oh, the rapture. Andrew asks, can Hans please explain the rapture? Yeah, the, the rapture is uh, an idea that, and, and it's tied to a way of reading, especially the book of Revelation and 2 Thessalonians and passages in there, where uh, Jesus will come back uh, but, we, but everyone who trusts in him will be taken to heaven visibly. And I think it's a fundamental misreading of scripture. Um, if you trace church history, uh, the doctrine of the rapture was brought in about 300 years ago. And so it, it, it's a relatively recent thing. It, it's not found in the early church fathers or the early church. Or even, you know. And so, yeah, so that's, that's the doctrine of the rapture. Um, and that's why I've... Um, uh, what was interesting when I was getting interviewed for the for the um, for the uh, job here, um, I looked through the statement of faith, and the one the uh, point on eschatology references the passage which talks about Jesus coming back and we will meet him in the clouds from uh, two Thessalonians. And I actually said, "I do you guys hold to the rapture? Because I don't." And what was very interesting in the leadership team there was. There was uh, different positions on that. There was two ladies who were, yeah, I, I hold to the rapture. So it's a second-order issue that we, we don't d- divide over, but uh, it's, it's not something I hold. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Michelle?
Yep. Great question. So Michelle's asking, just as hands can distinguish a Gibson guitar from a fake, how can we tell if healing services uh, are fake? Yeah, healing services or, 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 or even miracles in general? Or? Yeah, that's like yep. Okay. So, so, for example, uh, there are healing services around and there are some churches with healing services. I say, yeah, if you want to go to that, I think that would be great, right? How do, you, how do you test whether something is legit? I think it, it, it comes down to what they teach, right? Are they preaching the scriptures and are they preaching the gospel from the scriptures? That's the most important thing. If they're not, I've got to be very wary of what happens around that. The other thing is, when people talk about people being healed, I want to ask the question, who is the hero of the healing, right? So if, if someone is, is healed and they go, oh, you know, uh, thank you, Pastor, Pastor Tim, because he healed me, I want to go, actually, no, Pastor, T if you really believed in Jesus, it's not Pastor Tim that healed you, even though Pastor Tim is very fantastic, it's Jesus, so that's a problem. Or if you go, you know, I had enough faith and therefore I'm healed, I want to kind of ask questions. And so the other thing I want to be very careful of is when people talk about uh, miracles that I can't find in the Bible. So there are, um, my sister-in-law used to go to a church where when the Holy Spirit came down, there would, be, um, there would be gold that would fall from the ceiling. Now, I've read the, the Bible a few times. I've never heard of gold falling from the ceiling. I just want to go, actually, if I, if I can't find that in the Scriptures, I'm not going to find it here. Or something that's more, more pertinent, uh, more close to home. Um, in... In 1982, this church split over one issue, and that was, uh, that was around um, the baptism of the Spirit, you know, being slain in the Spirit, you know, praying for someone, they fall down, right? And a really sad, sad thing that happened back in 1982, right? But when I think about the sl being slain in the Spirit like that, I cannot see that in the New Testament. And so I, I'm, very, I'm very, very skeptical that that can happen. And so, so, okay, so I want to make sure that the gospel's preached. I want to make sure that whatever's happening miraculous, miraculously, I can see in the New Testament. Uh, and I want to see that the hero to the healing is Jesus, not anyone in the room. So I think those... Does that answer your question? Any other questions? Maybe one more? No questions? Can I just say, if anyone disagrees about anything that I've said in, in, in the Q&A or anything that I've said in the sermon, please come and talk with me about it, because I know these, these are big issues, and some of the things that when I, when, you know, some of the things that I've talked about, you may go, well, I had an experience like that, or I did this, or that kind of thing, and I'm, I'm frustrated that you've said that, or maybe even hurt. I would rather you come and talk with, with me about that, and we can have that conversation. Um, yeah, so I think that's really important. Thanks. Okay, thanks, Hans. Uh, let's uh, have some.